This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. During our last episode, we had a great discussion with Grace Bates and Heifeld Blum from Morgan Lewis. We discussed the evolution of DEI programs and corporate America's response to the murder of George Floyd. We explored advice Grace and High gave their clients as to how to establish effective DEI programs. Today, we will discuss DEI with a focus on the LGBTQ community. We are absolutely thrilled to have Rob Falk join us and share his insights on DEI for the LGBTQ community. Rob is a global thought leader on legal and business issues affecting nonprofit organizations. He served as general counsel of four different nonprofit organizations, two in the healthcare field, one in civil rights, and one in advertising, public health, and scientific research. He has also received multiple awards and leadership positions in the in-house bar community. Rob, we provided a very brief introduction, but we'd really appreciate it if you could tell us more about your professional journey and your work in furtherance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you folks. I started out my uh, legal career um, a long time ago when there were actually no legal protections for LGBTQ people. So when I started my legal practice, I was working in an environment where people could be fired for being gay. And so I struggled personally with whether to come out in the workplace. And uh, I came out very early in my career. My firm was forming a diversity committee in the early 90s. I called up my director of HR and I said, there's one group that's not represented in the, around the table and that's the gay and lesbian community. Uh, and I want a seat at the table. And that's how I came out in my firm. And so from there, uh, the firm was just very accepting and, and, and worked on these issues, inclu including LGBTQI services. Um, I was in private practice for a long time. I served as an acting general counsel of DC General Hospital. I was general counsel of Whitman Walker Health, which was a 
a healthcare and social services organization that serves at the, served at the time the LGBTQ community. From there, later on, I went to become the general counsel of the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBTQ uh, civil rights organization in the country. And now I uh, work at Truth Initiative, which is a nonprofit uh, seeking to end smoking, vaping, and nicotine addiction among youth. So I've had a lot of different experiences, but the, there's a common thread of trying to address disparities in uh, oppressed communities. Uh, and I really enjoyed that journey. Okay, welcome to today's workplace, Rob. Let's talk about language. Let's talk about um, what LGBTQ stands for. And if you could talk with us about sexual orientation and gender identity and how they differ from each other. Gladly. Um, so one of the things I wanna start out on is that people think about sexual orientation and gender identity as binary. Either you are straight or you are gay or lesbian. Uh, either you are male or female. And what we have to move towards is thinking about things on a spectrum. So uh, let's take apart the LGBTQI uh, alphabet and uh, go through what's listed there. And then I'll talk about the differences. The L stands for lesbian, G stands for gay, B stands for bisexual, T, transgender, Q, queer, I is often referred to, and the Q can also uh, refer to questioning sometimes. I refers to intersex, and A could be ally or asexual. Um, so there's a lot that can be put in there, but let's, let's break this down. So sexual orientation is who you are attracted to on a sexual basis. Typically, we think of the terminology straight as a person who is attracted to the opposite gender or the other gender. So if you're a man and you're attracted to women or attracted to femininity, you might be classified as straight. Uh, the term gay would be uh, somebody who is a man who is attracted to other men. They may not identify uh, uh, as gay. So we also use the term men who are men who have sex with men uh, because a lot of people who actually engage in the activity do not identify as gay. A lesbian would be a woman who's sexually attracted to women. Bi would be somebody who can be attracted to both. And one of the things I want to highlight here is that there is a phenomenon of bi-invisibility or bi-erasure. People may be in monogamous heterosexual marriages, uh, but still identify in bi, as bi. So I may be somebody, a woman who's married to a man. Uh, it's sexually exclusive, but I still identify as bi because I might be attracted to women. So there's a phenomenon where a lot of times the bisexuals feel left out of uh, discussions and inclusion. And again, sexual orientation is on a spectrum. Uh, it, you may be close to fully uh, heterosexual, you may be closely to fully gay or lesbian, or you may be somewhere in the middle. Gender identity is your intrinsic sense of self. 
how do you identify, and I, I need to introduce the concept of sex before I go into gender identity. Sex is the physical manifestation of your biology, which may be observable or not observable. And it's, we talk about uh, birth assigned sex because that's what the doctor looks at your parts and says, this is a male or female. But even in that context, there is a spectrum. Um, so people may be, have different chromosome patterns. So we think of male as XY chromosome pattern, uh, but there are people who are XXY. Um, there are people whose apparent genitalia may be, uh, may be one thing at birth, but at hormonal changes, the genitalia changes. There may be hidden genitalia that come out when puberty hits. Um, so even birth assigned sex is on a spectrum. So gender identity is your intrinsic sense of self. It's like, do I feel, do I identify as masculine or feminine or somewhere in between? And one of the things that's very new in the workplace is people who identify as non-binary, which can either refer to on the sexual orientation or gender identity uh, spectrum. They can, some people identify as male, some people identify as female, and some identify somewhere in between or neither. And this may be uh, uh, not apparent. So um, there's a difference between uh, gender identity, which is how I feel about myself, and gender expression, which is how I represent myself through social customs to the external world. So for me, uh, and for the podcast listen listeners who may not be able to see me, I am a white male. I have very short, close cropped hair. I have a little scruff going and I have um, apparently in the polo shirt, you can see some of the hair on my chest. In our society, that is a manifestation of maleness. And I actually happen to identify as male. Barbara and Belinda are sporting um, clothes that would be uh, identified as very professional and much more professional than I am uh, for women. Uh, Barbara is sporting a very sharp uh, blazer dress. Uh, they have very nicely coiffed hair that is on the longer side. And that would be interpreted as an expression of femaleness in our society. So it is an intrinsic, there's a difference between how I perceive myself and how I express myself in the world. Very, very interesting. Recently in business writing, people have started using pronouns um, in their signature blocks. Um, that's become fairly common. And what is, what is that about? So there is, it is an acknowledgement that people exist on a spectrum. And when we were talking about gender identity versus gender expression, mm -hmm. it may not be apparent how I identify. And so one of the things that has happened as a social phenomenon, uh, as an expression, not only of accepting people of having different gender identities, but encouraging that is people will say, my name is Rob, my pronouns are he, him, his. So it's very clear how I identify and how I'm asking to be referred to. Uh, so 
part of the custom that is developing is not assuming that you know how somebody identifies. So by putting your pronouns in your signature block, uh, you're indicating that you're open to people uh, having different gender identities. Um, you do see other pronouns other than he, him, she, hers. Uh, many people who identify as uh, non-binary will use the pronouns they, them. And there are other pronouns out there that people have used. Uh, you've, you have seen pronouns like Z and here uh, as expressions of different gender identities that are neither male nor female. And there are others out there as well. I believe Facebook, for instance, recognizes over sexual, 60 sexual orientations and gender identities uh, and pronouns can be part of how people can be listed there. Mm -hmm. So you talked about, you know, the, the social phenomena of um, not only the, the, the more uh, visible use of pronouns, but also more of society understanding uh, what the different um, letters or the different types of identities and orientations mean. How do you, what's your, what's your opinion of how well you think the workplace has kept up with that and has given, I guess, more support to that community? Uh, there has been a lot of progress, but I would say it's bifurcated. Um, Large-scale corporations that uh, are dependent on knowledge workers mm -hmm. tend to have adopted policies uh, and practices that are much more inclusive. That may be corporate policy, but there may be a disparity in individual experience within the corporation. People who work in, with smaller employers, who work more in... Um, what we would call blue collar, may have fewer corporate protections, may not have policies or procedures uh, with, from their employers that protect them. So I think we have seen a lot of progress at a certain level, uh, but the lived experience may be different. So somebody may work for a company that advocates for LGBT inclusion and equality. They may have appropriate policies and procedures but it really is the experience that somebody has with her manager, with her peers that determines her experience in the workplace. Now, I recall a time when the American Psychological Association treated being gay or lesbian actually as a mental illness. And last year, the United States Supreme Court acknowledged that Title VII rights apply to the LGBT community on the federal level. And I know that this monumental decision came after years of struggle to ensure equal rights for the LGBTQ community. Can you briefly describe the evolution of civil rights for the community in the US? Gladly. So within the US, everything before the 70s, uh, same-sex attraction, uh, differing gender identities was criminalized or made um, a disease state. One of the launching points of the LGBTQ civil rights movement were the Stonewall riots in New York where police were raiding a uh, gay bar in New York City called Stonewall, um, which actually um, uh, had a very large transgender client base. And it was part of a pattern of 
practice of uh, arresting and harassing LGBTQ individuals. And on that evening, basically the patrons didn't take it, they started rioting. And this started a uh, long-term dialogue about actually fighting for rights, no longer accepting being criminalized and moving towards demands for equal rights, both in terms of same-sex marriage, employment protections, housing protections, credit protections, a whole host of things that uh, people who identify as straight or cisgender have had in society. Uh, And I just wanna pause here because I haven't defined the term cisgender and transgender. So Mm -hmm. let's take a pause there. Uh, An individual is cisgender if they identify as a gender and their birth assigned sex matches that. So I, my birth assigned sex was male and I happen to identify as male. So I am referred to as cisgender. Somebody may be birth assigned sex male but their intrinsic sense of self is female and they may identify as transgender. You will see the terms uh, a trans man to refer to somebody whose birth assigned sex was female, but they identify as male and somebody whose birth assigned sex was female, but they, uh, I'm sorry, birth assigned sex was male and they identify as female would be a trans woman. So, So that term right there, trans man and trans woman, doesn't have anything to do with whether or not someone has um, gone through, you know, surgery changes or anything like that to become um, the the sex and gender that they feel intrinsically. Right. So we can talk about treatment. Uh, you would talk about sexual uh, uh, gender uh, confirmation surgery. So mm-hmm. if I identify as female. I may have surgery to modify my body type so that my outward expression is female. So we talk about gender confirmation surgery. Um, There is not all people who identify as transgender will go through medical treatment. Some people will have just hormone treatment. Some uh, trans women will have breast augmentation. They may actually have modifications to their genitalia below the waist. Some trans men will take testosterone to take on a more masculine, what we consider a masculine appearance and may never have any surgery below the waist. They might have surgery uh, to remove breasts, but uh, you you don't necessarily know. One of the things that I would just point out as a best practice is you never ask anybody about their medical treatment on anything. If somebody has cancer and you're in the workplace, you don't ask about it. If somebody has had a gender confirmation surgery or gender confirmation treatment, you don't ask about medical treatment. So if somebody says, I identify as male or I identify as female, you don't ask whether they've received any treatment uh, around that. So thank you for raising that question. Great advice, great advice. You talked about uh, a little bit about the evolution of civil rights uh, protecting the LGBTQ community in the United States. And um, I'd like to know, do you, you have any perspective on what, uh, how things have evolved globally outside of the United States? Yeah, one of the things that employers, uh, especially multinational employers, uh, 
have to grapple with, especially if they're trying to be uh, as inclusive as possible to the LGBTQ community, is that the laws and treatments of LGBTQ individuals across the world vary enormously. Uh, in some countries, sexual identity, or sexual orientation and gender identity are criminalized. And in some countries, it comes with a death penalty. In certain countries, uh, privacy laws prevent from even asking questions about sexual orientation or gender identity. So it becomes difficult for multinational corporations to manage things. So say for example, if I were staff member uh, of a corporation in the United States married to another man and my uh, employer wanted me to take an assignment to um, say Saudi Arabia where same-sex orientation or same-sex orientation is criminalized. It, it can be very difficult to navigate how you arrange a transfer, protect your employees and affirm their relationships. Uh, and that is, a, that is a real struggle for employers. My former employer, the Human Rights Campaign has available on its website some really great resources for transnational corporations. And I highly recommend that people who want to learn more uh, mm -hmm. go to that website. It's www.hrc.org. Yeah, according to the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law, um, they've conducted surveys that show LGBT people consistently report um, having experienced discrimination based on their sexual orientation or gender identity in the workplace. Um, there's been a survey, for example, that showed that 27% of LGB employees had experienced workplace harassment and 7% had lost their jobs. Similar statistics exist with respect to um, transgender um, respondents to these um, surveys. So these numbers are really disturbing. And the question for you is what steps should employers take to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion for the LGBTQ community? Um, that's a great question. And I, I want to step back because there's a difference between the law and the lived experience. So Barbara, as you mentioned previously, the Supreme Court uh, recently confirmed that certain civil rights laws, which apply only to employers above uh, 50, now protect LGBTQ individuals. Well, those civil rights statutes have been in place for more than 50 years and nominally you know, are supposed to protect, for example, people of color. And we know that people of color still continue to experience discrimination in the workplace. And so there is a difference between legal protection, which creates remedies versus what actually, ha what actually people experience. So I just want to acknowledge that. And I also want to acknowledge that there's a lot of intersectionality here. And when I use the term intersectionality is that people may have dual identities. They may be both queer and black or Asian. They may be uh, both queer and a veteran. They may be queer and somebody with other disabilities, either observable or not observable. So 
people's lived experiences are different. And what employers can do, first of all, is set a standard for what's acceptable and not acceptable in the workplace. And that's, you know, sort of minimum uh, legal protections. You know, we do not engage in discriminatory behavior. We do not uh, engage in harassment. We do not use epithets. So that's sort of a minimum standard, uh, which, you know, at a minimum relates to employers avoiding liability. So that's, uh, that's avoiding legal consequences. Mm -hmm. um, what comes next is what, is what is necessary and helpful to allow people to bring their full self to the workplace. And that's a very different standard and it takes a lot more work to make people feel included. So let me just give an example. Uh, you know, if you identify as gay and you're in a same-sex marriage, you may come to an employer and they talk about your spouse only as your husband or your wife. And if it's male, it may be, they presume that something on the uh, forms may be, what is the name of your wife? Well. I don't have a wife, I will never have a wife. Um, also, people, you know, forms can presume that you are either male or female and do not identify as uh, non-binary. So pronouns on forms can indicate a lack of inclusion. So there are a lot of subtle cues within an organization. Um, I think, Barbara, you mentioned the inclusion of pronouns in email signature blocks is a sign of inclusion that we recognize that people may have certainly different uh, gender identities that may not be readily apparent, but it also is a signaling for uh, sexual orientation. I think, you know, being clear about what is acceptable or not acceptable is uh, very useful. I want to give an example uh, many years ago. So one law firm uh, that I was doing some consulting work with had an employee transition in the workplace. It was, it, the person uh, was birth assigned male and was uh, transitioning publicly to live authentically as a woman. So the law firm you know, was preparing for the transition. They um, sent out an email to all staff saying that Joe uh, come Monday morning will be Jane our expectation is that people will refer to her by Jane. They will use uh, the she, her pronouns. Uh, people will not ask, um, people will not ask about any medical treatment she's uh, getting. We will embrace this. Um, they also said, we understand that certain people may not feel comfortable sharing a bathroom with Jane. And to accommodate that, we have reserved one bathroom on the ground floor of our building for people, and it's a single use stall, so people who are not comfortable sharing a bathroom will have access to a single use uh, stall. But it was not accommodating, in other words, the person who needed the protection and the support of the organization was not the person who was forced to compromise. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of felt like that was a lovely response. I think communicating about what was going to be acceptable and not acceptable behavior and that the leadership of the uh, firm in question was right behind the employee was, you know, a strong signal about how the firm was going to react. You know, Rob, you make such an excellent point in talking about the difference between the law and really cultural transformation. One is about compliance 
And one is really about include inclusion and the experience of individuals in the workplace. And I think that's a, a great takeaway for this entire series on diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can focus on the law, but that's really kind of the minimal standard. The real objective needs to be that cultural transformation. Yeah, I, I, that is really important. And I think, you know, we're at a moment right now where we are dealing with long-term consequences of past practices, right? It, it, you know, when we're talking about uh, anti-racism work, we are talking about things that have built up systemically. And, you know, one of the things I love about my current organization, which is seeking to uh, prevent um, another ongoing cycle of smoking, vaping, and nicotine addiction among youth is that we have to actually deal with historical realities. So I just want to talk about, you know, how does that show up in our work, but all of this shows up in the workplace from history. So um, as part of a settlement with the big tobacco companies in the late 90s, tobacco companies were forced to release all their internal documents to a public website, which now can be reviewed by the public. And there's a quote in one of the documents that's uh, talking where what a uh, tobacco executive is talking about the African-American community and marketing to the African-American community. And the quote is as follows. We don't smoke this shit, we just sell it. We reserve the right to smoke for the young, the poor, the black, and the stupid. And that was wow. the attitude of the um, executives towards their clients. Also at, the same, also at the same time, there was a marketing campaign targeting the LGBTQ community where it was referred to as Project Scum. Um, and so we are dealing with the realities that big corporations were targeting oppressed communities. And as a result, there was higher smoking rates taken up and there's still in the African-American community, there is an incredible prevalence of menthol use because that's what they were targeted to buy. In the LGBT community, there's a much higher prevalence of smoking because we were targeted. Mm -hmm. And so we need to think about, you know, in the long term, how did we get to where we are? And we have to like look back at our past to understand, okay, this normal has an origin somewhere. And then we have to come up with strategies to rise above our history. It doesn't mean who we are now are inherently bad, but we're reacting in an environment that was set for us a long time ago. Yeah. Rob, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, an organization that you um, worked for, had the, the, the pleasure to work for, which was the Human Rights Campaign, um, because I know that they have done a great job of translating for organizations the things that they can do uh, to make the LGBTQ community feel included feel respected, feel protected. And so, uh, you know, I'd like to, you to talk a little bit about uh, the power of um, the index that the human rights campaign set up and, and what you observe in terms of how transformative uh, was that or, or, or is it, does it continue to be today? Yeah, I am incredibly proud of the work that uh, the human rights campaign 
did and continues to do on the corporate equality index because it literally has changed the lived experience uh, in corporate America. So at the time the corporate equality index was dreamed up, there were no legal protections based on sexual orientation or gender identity or very few at the state level. And there was no possibility of federal protection. So what the organization tried to do, started to do was rate organization based on their policies and practices towards the LGBTQ community. And they were really strategic about it because basically they would rate people on a scale of zero or corporations on a scale of zero to a hundred. Uh, and they were very transparent about what it took to uh, get a certain score. They would bring in business community leaders to evaluate what was within the range of possibility for the, um, for the corporate world. They would announce standards two years in advance and they would rate corporations. And their strategy was to rate corporate, uh, the Fortune 500 firms, whether they participated or not. So you would get a score whether or not you participated, but they would give you an opportunity to voluntarily submit information, which would lead to a higher score. And then over time, they actually started raising the bar. And what they found was that corporate America responded really well to a sense of competition. Uh, and also the fact that uh, the standards were transparent and they provided materials freely, made materials freely available online uh, and through staff that would help people get to 100 uh, score. And so what we've seen over time is that this has actually become the standard in uh, large corporate America. It's been transformative in terms of the policies and procedures that corporations have in place. And it has informed, it has informed the legislative and social environment. A lot of times uh, lawmakers would oppose opposed legislation uh, protecting sexual orientation or gender identity because it would be, quote, overly burdensome, end quote, uh, on business. Uh, what the transformation of corporate America was, showed was actually corporate America could absorb this. And not only that, corporate America was asking for the legislation. They wanted mm -hmm. to see the protection. So it, it changed corporate America to an unwilling participant to allies and advocates for change. So it's been incredibly transformative. I give full credit to the organization for that. That's great. I've actually had um, the experience of uh, being one of those corporations that responded uh, to HRC's uh, excellent guidance and saw, saw the impact. So thanks for taking us back through that. Um, also, I, I wanted to talk about the generational difference. I read a report recently that said by 2025, which is only a few years away, 80% of the workforce will be categorized as millennials. And I wanna ask you if you think from a cultural standpoint that we'll see any shifts because the vast majority of um, the workforce is millennials, will there be a cultural shift in uh, how the LGBTQ community is accepted and included in a workplace environment? Great question. I think the reality is we're already seeing that. For millennials and Gen Zers, uh, the question of sexual orientation and gender identity is really less and less of an issue. Uh, people of 
that generation have grown up with LGBTQ family members, friends, uh, colleagues, and they really don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. I recently saw a poll that said even the majority of Republicans under 40 supported legal protections for, based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So this is no longer, at least for a certain age group, an issue in society. They, they see it as just, these are people who they are, let's move on. And I think uh, I always make the analogy of we're sort of in the 40 years in the desert. Uh, it's the older people that struggle more with the mm -hmm. issue. And yeah. I think it's up to our generation to catch up with our uh, younger counterparts. You know, even though we've come a long way when it comes to attitudes about lesbian and gays, there still is widespread lack of acceptance of transgender individuals. And you touched on this just a few minutes ago, but talk to us about particular concerns regarding transgender employees. So we know that transgender folk uh, especially transgender folk of color, experience violence and death at a much higher rate than other people in society. We know that transgender individuals experience much more uh, overt discrimination in the workplace. And this comes from you know, how we define ourselves in society. If we think about our first experience um, and I, in uh, our own uh, gender identity. Typically, when you are very young, you will have an experience where you do not uh, conform to the expectations for your birth assigned sex, your gender. And typically, the cultural response is immediate, swift, and highly punitive, sometimes physically so. So we, we start life in a uh, situation where people who do not conform to gender expectations are punished. And that is uh, carried forward into the workplace. The bottom line is people should be rewarded uh, and evaluated based on their ability to get their work done, not based on how they express themselves. Uh, and I think part of it is people don't understand what it means to be transgender, what it means to have a discrepancy between your birth assigned sex and your sex itself. And so uh, if you will humor me, I'm gonna take you through a thought experience here. And um, I'm gonna invite the audience to join me in this, to give you a sense of how, how fundamental our uh, sense of gender identity is to us personally. Um, I want you to visualize me holding a bag that contains $10 million in cash. And that $10 million, I am going to give you immediately on one condition. You have to live the rest of your life overtly as a gender that you don't identify with. So if you identify as male, you are going to have to uh, uh, express yourself as female for the rest of your life. If you identify as female, you have to live as male in the rest of your life. 
you're going to have to change your hairstyle. You're going to have to change your clothes. There is no guarantee that you will still have family. Your family may reject you. You may lose your job. You might lose your friends. You might lose the ability to find housing. So how many of us are willing to take that risk to change the gender expression for $10 million? I've used this example in a lot of trainings and although there are sometimes some jokes made, but generally speaking, people will not change their gender expression for $10 million. So there's something about your sense of self that is so important that you're not willing to take $10 million for it. That is the experience of transgender people. They uh, have a sex assigned to them at birth. They feel something different and they are willing to risk it all to be their authentic selves. And I think we need to honor that courage. That's a great example that I think every single human being can relate to um, you know, what you, you posed. And that's a great way to explain what transgender uh, individuals are going through. Um, there, was, there was something else that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I think we have a little bit of time for it. You talked about having to look back at our history to give us context on, you know, how did we get to this place so that we can figure out where we're trying to go, particularly in terms of how we accept, include, and, you know, protect individuals that we have, quote unquote, othered in society. And so speaking of the past, I wanted to talk about um, the religious, I guess, response to um, sexual orientation. There's some religions that consider any sexual orientation other than male to female as a sin and an abomination. And so when it comes to the workplace, how do you think employers should handle situations where an employee employee's religious beliefs are contrary to a company's policies that prohibit discrimination against LGBTQ employees? So I wanna talk about this in two levels. First, people do have freedom of religion. That's a, that is a core value. However, there is difference between uh, your faith and your behavior in the workplace. So people are free to have their own religious uh, beliefs, but if an employer or the law sets the standard that you cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual uh, orientation or gender identity, then there's no place for accepting discriminatory behavior in the workplace. I also think there is a misnomer uh, or a misconception that all religion is a force against LGBTQ inclusion in the workplace. There are many uh, communities of faith that are fully inclusive and have uh, worked to promote LGBT uh, rights. Um, for instance, when I was at uh, the Human Rights Campaign, uh, we were working on uh, marriage equality in the District of Columbia, uh, which in fact was the first jurisdiction ever to pass marriage equality legislatively. And we knew that African American clergy were going to be the key to finding support within the city. And there were 
There was a large coalition of African-American clergy and African-American political leaders who came forward and stepped up and expressed their support for marriage equality. And so religion is not monolithic and we can't talk about it that way uh, because I think it, it creates, uh, it, it's, it's an anti-religious bias, right? I mean, we presume that if somebody is a person mm -hmm. of faith, they're gonna believe certain things about LGBTQ community. And that's not fair to people of faith. Great, thank you. So as we um, come to the end of what's been a fascinating discussion, mm -hmm. Rob, what are the top three pieces of sound advice you'd like to give any employer who is revisiting DEI initiatives and want to ensure a diverse and inclusive environment for LGBT employees? So first of all, the good news is you don't have to invent the wheel. Uh, other organizations have done this before. There are plenty of resources out there. I happen to be very familiar with the human rights campaign uh, resources that are freely available uh, on their website, but um, there are a lot of other examples out there. Second of all, leadership starts at the top and tone comes from there. And so setting an expectation uh, about how we talk about LGBTQ issues and the fact that they that members of the LGBT community are part of our workforce. And we are going to invest not only in those members, but in uh, the community at large. And then I think one of the areas uh, where employers uh, particularly have had concerns is how do I handle uh, a staff member who is transitioning in the workplace who may have been working uh, for many years as uh, outwardly expression as male and they say, I want to show up as my authentic self as a female in the future. And I think part of it is not being afraid to talk to the person, trying to figure out how to make the process as uh, possible and then standing behind that person uh, as they come out and setting expectations for staff. Those are some of the most common things that I'm asked about. Uh, and I think it's good guidance. That's wonderful, Rob. And you know, you've provided us with um, such good, um, clear, understandable explanations of um, the LGBTQ issues and experiences in the workplace. Um, you've alluded to um, many references that are out there. It's good to know that we don't have to reinvent the wheel and uh, we'll follow up so that we can make sure those references are available on our Today's Workplace podcast website. Uh, but for now, we'd like to really thank you. Um, I don't think there are enough words to thank you for providing us with so much valuable information and insight in, in uh, really how organizations can um, really approach their DEI programming and to make sure that we uh, address the issues properly as they relate to our LGBTQ colleagues. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. It's been a fun conversation. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.